So yeah, we'll go ahead and uh, just get started. And I know it's been a while, but welcome back to Oh Comrade, Where Art Thou? Uh, I'm Alex. And this is Andrew. And uh, the coronavirus times, whatever you want to call it, the end of days, I don't know, whatever <laughs> whatever floats your boat, uh, has, has gotten us to take a little bit of a step back and kind of re, you know, think of the podcast a little bit differently. And, you know, we all, we do always try to provide you with updates on current events, uh, what's going on. I mean, to kind of briefly do that, I mean, the coronavirus is still bad in the United States. Uh, it's still bad in Russia. Uh, it's suspected that Ramzan Kadyrov, who's the, uh, or Kadyrov, who's the uh, head of Chechnya, uh, he's suspected to be infected by the coronavirus. Uh, he apparently was flown to Moscow for treatment. Um, so, I mean, it is, you know, reaching places of power or people of power in Russia. Uh, it's it's hitting far and wide uh, in Russia. I mean, one of the places where I've heard the outbreak is particularly bad is in Dagestan, <clears throat> Dagestan, excuse me, which is down there in the in the Caucasus Mountains, down by like the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. So it's, you know, it's interesting times that we live in uh, for sure. But we wanted to, to take a step back from that and at least, I think, try to answer some more fundamental questions about Russia and, and Russian history and, and how those relate to, you know, the time that we live in now. And one of those questions is, you know, if you look at a, if you look at Russia on a map, it's huge, right? I mean, it borders Poland and it borders North Korea, uh, which is, zones? you know, kind of staggering to think about. It borders Japan in the Sakhalin Islands. Um, and kind of the question is, how did a country that kind of started off in the forests and the rivers of, of Eastern Europe grow to be the largest country, um, the largest country currently existing? And, you know, the Russian empire was one of the largest territorial empires in the world. Uh, and the answer is actually kind of remarkable and it's a fascinating story and it's furs. Uh, so that's, you know, something that's kind of gone out of vogue these days, but, you know, fur was a status symbol, right? Fur coats, fur hats, uh, were worn by royalty, nobility, uh, merchants, right? The wealthy. It was a, a major, major status symbol. And so the question sort of was, well, where did all of this come from, right? Where is the fur that they need in England, France, Germany? Where does that come from? Like, especially after they've, you know, exhausted their own supply. Well, the answer was Russia. And that was the sort of main, the first main asset that Russia traded with the Western world was fur. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> and it, you know, they, they start off trading fur and there's obviously lots of forests and, and rivers in those areas in, in European Russia. So there's a lot of access to fur there. But I mean, as you can probably imagine, they quickly exhaust that resource. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes like, well, where do we look for more? Right. So there's the forests in the north, right, like closer to Finland, you know, places like that. But there's also Siberia, right, this great expanse that we now know of as Siberia. And, you know, for for Russians, and I think it's also interesting, too, well, this is a little bit of an aside, is that we I think a lot of foreigners, um, Americans, Europeans associate Siberia with Russia. Right. Like that, like right. Siberia is the heart of Russia. It, it's you know, that's where you go to find like the real Russia. And that's actually kind of I mean, I, I don't want to say that that's necessarily wrong, but it's fascinating because that was never a part of 
the historical core of where the Russian people began, right? I mean, we're, we're talking mm-hmm. about a, a country and a people that are very much, you know, they're in Europe, right? On the, on the periphery, there are Slavic people, right? Related to Poles, Czechs, um, Slovaks, Serbians, for example. But they wind up gaining the vast majority of their territory in what, you know, we would now consider Asia. And, you know, really the how that begins is the conquest of and this is a, a seminal moment in Russian history is the conquest of the um, Kazan Khanate. Right. So just kind of as a brief, you know, little brief Russian history, the ancestors of Genghis Khan, the Mongols, they come uh, westward through the Central Asian, you know, plain into Europe. And while they don't really make a, you know, a huge splash in Europe, to use that term, um, it's they become a major player on the European step. Uh, and that's Russia. Right. And so Russia is sort of subjugated to the um, to the Khans, to the ancestors of Genghis Khan uh, for centuries. Uh, but it's Ivan the Terrible, um, whose name actually maybe we've mentioned this before, but his in Russian, it's I, it's Ivan Grozny. And Grozny doesn't really mean terrible. It means like awe-inspiring, right? Like that that sort of terrible. So not that he was like a bad ruler, but that he inspired, you know, terror or awe in his subjects and his opponents. So Ivan the Terrible conquers the Kazan Khanate, right? And the, the modern city of Kazan is still there. A uh, beautiful mosque there. I've I've seen it. The Kul Sharif Mosque, I think, is what it's called. And a lot of the many of the Tatars, you know, the the ancestors of the Mongols still live there. Um, but anyway, by conquering the Kazan Khanate, the uh, Ivan the Terrible has sort of eliminated the last area that separates Russia from the vast Siberian plain. Right. So now that the the Khanate of the now that the Khanate of Kazan is out of the way, there's all of this territory that's opened up. And now the question is like, well, what's going to be done with this territory? What are we going to find there? Well, the big thing is furs, right? I mean, they know that there are, you know, they know that there's vast forest lands out there. They know that, um, that there's fur out there. And so the question becomes like, well, you know, how are we going to gain access to this territory? What you know? How are we going to gain control over these resources? Is it, and, Alex? Is it like yeah, a, if, if you want to, if Americans are trying to kind of get a frame of reference, would that be a comparable um, territorial expansion as the uh, Louisiana Purchase? For the I mean, yes, very, I mean, very, like very similar. Yes, I mean, especially in the ways that it that it began, um, because you know you had the Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm-hmm. Right. Which what I think was early in the 19th century. You know, you had uh, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio made a whole movie about it. Right. Like the reverend. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you had expeditions out there of, of very small groups of, you know, explorers, robbers, whatever you want to call them. Right. But you didn't have mass settlement until much later. Right. 50, 60 years later. And I mean, in a similar thing plays out in Siberia, mm-hmm. you know, there there's sort of no incentive at this point for Russian peasants um, to move into this land, right? Because it's not good agricultural land. It needs, you know, the forest needs to be cleared. And there's honestly plenty of land in European Russia for that, for central expansion. And so, you know, the the czar has to incentivize 
expansion into this area. It has to incentivize people to go out and, and explore it. And, you know, what he does is, have you ever heard of beef stroganoff before, Andrew? I have. It's the dish? Good. Yeah. Yes. So the, the stroganoffs at the time were the one of the wealthiest Russian noble families ever, right? Mm -hmm. And the Tsar Ivan the Terrible basically gives them license over trade in Siberia. Okay. And it's going to be up to them to, you know, bring goods back from this territory. And so they hire uh, a bunch of Cossacks uh, led by a man named Ermak or Ermak Timofeyevich, I think is his name. And he goes out into Siberia, you know, explores the area, fights battles with local tribes, and they start sending back furs. Right. Mm -hmm. And now that it's understood that there is a lot of furs in this area, right? There's sable, there's ermine, there's, you know, squirrel, there's all of this out there. More and more expeditions start to, you know, to move into Siberia looking for furs. And, you know, the fascinating thing about this is, is like sort of much like the North American fur trade, um, it's not really accompanied by large scale migration, you know, right. it's mostly it's you know, it's mostly achieved through violence, right? Small groups of, of Russian soldiers who have firearms, who have, you know, infectious diseases on their side arrive and say, you know, you're going to, you know, trade with us right? in air quotes. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get you know, we're going to get these furs this way. And so it's a very you know, it's a very hands off system, albeit one that's that's solidified through violence. So it, it, it eventually comes to pass that the system that is put into place, it's called the Yasik, um, which is, I think it's a Turkish word. And it was similar to how the Mongols collected tribute from their, you know, from the tribes that they had subdued, the peoples they had uh, conquered. And so the Yasik essentially was, you know, for every tribe of indigenous people in Siberia, every male over a certain age would have to give the Russian merchants a certain amount of furs every year. Okay. You know, otherwise um, women and children were going to be kidnapped, right? Held yeah. for ransom or the tribe was going to be wiped out. And I mean, that's initially how the system is put into place. So Siberia itself, you know, really remains outside of, of Russia. It's still this sort of, you know, if you think of like the Thomas Conrad or is it Joseph Conrad, you know, heart of darkness, Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's this whole territory that's out there and it's not known what's really there, but it is known that you can become fabulously wealthy by. Right. And this is so just so I'm clear on this, this is all like. This is all being imposed on the native populations that were already um, exactly established in, a, in an existence with the um, in Siberia. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were already there. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, you know, lots of different peoples like the Chukchi, the Nenets, um, right. Lutz, right? I mean, they, they've already, you know, they've already existed there, but, you know, sort of like much like with any sort of resource, like we think of, well, I guess, um, as far as we know, or as far as I know, like the Aztec and Incas value gold, but I mean, maybe to put like the North American context into play, like certainly like these peoples used furs, right? Right. Like, they trapped animals and used the furs, but it was really like a utility measure, right? Like it was to keep warm. You know, it oh, yeah, wasn't. No, th this is like that. I mean, to me, that that seems very similar to um, the same. 
type of like relationship with um you know furs as a tool for the native populations versus like as a commodity for um you know the the Europeans exactly and you know much like the United States fur trade you know it's something where like the you know the sort of the other fascinating thing about it and you know really why like we talk about colonization how you know north america how um you know russia are sort of a window into what will later happen in africa you know it's mm-hmm. not the europeans uh who are doing most of the trapping right like they're not doing most of the work it's the natives right or the indigenous peoples that are forced to do all of this work on behalf of the russians right and so you have this system in place where, again, like it doesn't demand, you know, it's not like colonizing or expanding into a country in that sense. Yet it's still, you know, it's still colonialism. So, you know, you, you have this system in place. And I think that, you know, really what it does is it leads to a, you know, sort of fascinating uh, a fascinating development of the mode of governance. And, and you, you, you might have, like, people might have heard this before, like, you know, the, it's called the resource curse, right? That for the most part, you know, maybe like Norway, Canada excluded, countries that are blessed or cursed, as it may, as it may be, with an abundance of natural resources, don't really tend to you know, have the type of economic, political, social development that you would expect, right? Like it tends to lead to more authoritarian types of government, less democratic types of government, and in many cases, like economic ruin when that resource, you know, dries up or is, you know, no longer valued. Interesting. I had never, I had never heard of that. Um, and I'm just kind of going through my I'm going through my like my mental list of you know like the the single um you know the, the big like I guess single resource based commodities and how so like you mentioned Norway which they were a, a petrol state but I think they're one of the few exceptions where they actually did a really good job of um preparing themselves for not being dependent on oil um, mm-hmm. versus say Saudi Arabia, which is just they're absolutely screwed when the, despite their best efforts. Um, or, or look at Venezuela. Yeah, right? Venez- Venezuela. And, and this isn't just like petrol states, but um, or look at within the United States itself, right? Like West West Virginia and coal, or. Um, you know, or uh, like my home state, Wyoming, and coal, and first oil and natural gas, and you know they'll, they might find more minerals there at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally it leads to very uneven economic development, and it leads to you know the, a, a type of state that like doesn't really have to value its its population and. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think like the best way to put this is like, you know, if we look at the Russian fur trade, right? And like, right. let's think about how it, it takes place. And I mean, I think people can also, you know, in their heads start making parallels to how some economic systems even to this day work, 
right? So like if you're the Russian czar, right, mm -hmm. you're the, the indigenous peoples who are actually doing the work, who are actually gathering the furs and trapping the animals for you, they're not your subjects in the sense, I mean, they, you do consider them your subjects because everyone is your subjects, right? right? But like, they're not subjects that you have to care about, right? So you don't really need them. Well, they're not your people, right? Like, yeah. they're, not, they're not of your type, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they're they're not. I mean, yeah, they're they're subjects in the sense that you know you com you, you have believe authority you have authority over them, over them exactly. But they're not someone whose well being you have to look after, right? Right, and you have these small groups of of you know at this time obviously it was men right going into Siberia gathering these furs bringing them back bringing you enormous sources of wealth right so then you provide the protection for them or you you know find others whether it's the Stroganov family or, or Stroganov family or, or whatnot to protect them the men who go out and get this resource then obviously you need to protect the trade routes mm -hmm. between you and the countries that you trade with to bring in all of this money but as far as everybody else goes they're not really that necessary, right? Right. Like you don't really care about the well-being of the guy who owns the restaurant or the tavern or the, you know, the the ironsmith, right? The blacksmith. You don't care about them because they're not bringing in the ton, you know, the the barrels full of gold and furs that you want to stay rich. And so really, you know, what happens in a state, at least in the in the pre-modern Russian state, is you don't have any sort of notion that in like the developing human capital is necessary at all. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. everything exists for extracting resources. And that's the whole purpose of the state is to oversee this process, to protect yeah. it. Yes. And in exchange, it gets a cut of the profits. I mean, in many ways, like, you know, that's that's the mafia right there. Right. I mean, like that's, you know, Tony Soprano or Don Corleone. Right. Like right. you want to go out and have a card game or deal drugs or, you know, do whatever it is you want to do. But you can't go to the cops. You need someone to protect you. Well, that's me. And in exchange, I'm going to get my piece. Right. Well, that's that's interesting. And it's I mean, you know, it's pretty it's a pretty clear historical trend, too, like in all of these cases where the establishment and function of the state has almost universally been to protect the like protect the mechanism of that resource extraction um especially when that extraction is occurring on the um i guess not like on the non-native soil of the um, I, oh, what's the what's the word for it? Like the the colonizer nation, mm -hmm. right? Like the the opposite of the client state. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I mean, certainly, like Russia is like you know maybe this is the term you're going for, like you know the metropole, right? Like the yeah. the center of this empire that sort of exists to you know exploit the periphery and. Um, you know, to kind of go back to that that sort of parallel, right? I mean, it is sort of it is fascinating because 
you know, what's always, I think, distinguished Russia from, say, Britain um, or France or, I mean, any country that has these overseas colonies. And it, and it makes the whole process like very, you know, messy and, and hard to figure out is, you know, Russia builds this sort of territorial empire, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not, you know, it's not overseas, right? Like it's, it's linked by land to Moscow. And so it, it gives, I think the sense that, you know, I think many like the Russians would say now, right? That this was all sort of their territory, mm-hmm. but, and I mean, even the United States as well, like when we think about it, I mean, there is that sort of fascinating parallel between our countries where, you know, the United States starts off as this core along the Eastern, you know, seaboard, Right. But slowly begins to amass territory and push itself west. Whereas now, like, you know, we, we think of the Midwest as like the heartland. Right. But I mean, like that used to be the frontier. Mm-hmm. You know, like if we were living in New York City in 1800, um, I don't think that we would think of Ohio or Wisconsin or Minnesota um, or Indiana as, you know, the place where American values are born and bred. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's the periphery, it's the frontier. Right. Uh, I mean, and I'm not trying to diminish those States at all, or that part of the country. I'm just saying that like, this is the progression that happens. Right. Whereas like, you know, India, you know, is never, I mean, that, that might be sort of the crowning achievement of, of Russia and the United States. Right. Is, you know, India never becomes a part of the, of Britain the way that like, I don't know, um, or of the United Kingdom in the way that like Scotland does, right? Like they're, they're never able to get over or breach that, you know, cross that mental divide between, you know, this is, this territory, India is something that is separate and distinct from where we are right now. Whereas in the United States and, and Russia, right? I mean, we're very much colonial powers, right? I, I don't think that you can look at, what happened to indigenous people in the United States and Russia and not see that as colonialism. Uh, in fact, I mean, it's, it's honestly like in some ways it was worse because the death toll among native peoples in Siberia and in the Western United States and all among all indigenous peoples in the United States was oftentimes very high per capita. Right. I mean, there are native peoples in Russia that they talk about in, you know, chronicles and, and other like historical sources that are completely gone. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're completely wiped out. And, and that's sort of the other perverse thing about the the resource state. Right. And sort of why, you know, Russia owes its size to the fur trade and why the United States owes its size to the fur trade and also the gold rush in California, because I think that it's only through the allure of riches like that, that you can get enough people to go out into these territories, right? And it creates this sort of, this sort of process where, you know, once the resources is gone in mm-hmm. one place, that's what propels them to move on to the next place, right? Because they remember the riches that they had, you know, wherever it is that they were, right? So in Russia's case, you know, they just keep moving further and further east, you know, not because they're particularly adventurous or anything like that. It's because they're running out of furs where they already are. Right. And I think that it shows you, right, how valuable of an asset this is that the Russians go all the way to Alaska following sea otters, right? Yeah. And they make it all the way to Alaska. They actually make it all the way to Northern California, 
Uh, I mean, you know, anyone in, in the audience who's from, I think it's in Sonoma County, uh, it's called Fort Ross. You know, it was a Russian fort, a Russian outpost that was built in the early 19th century in California. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they make it all that way. I mean, when, when, you know, when you think about it, that's staggering, right, to go across almost the entire Asian landmass, across the Pacific Ocean, all the way to California. Yeah, that, that is like prefers. literally halfway across the world. Like you are going halfway, like halfway across the world. Yeah, you are. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And yet the Russian state does that in pursuit of furs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's sort of like, I guess we're going to have a little bit of a transition point, right? I mean, that's like the simple answer of, you know, how Russia becomes, you know, so large, so, right? I mean, I, oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, okay. So I, so we're, we're making a lot of these comparisons with Russia and the United States. And I think that's apt because um, they're, they're both massive, um, geographically speaking, countries. I, I guess I'm wondering, was there a similar, um, was there a similar kind of, frontier mindset in Russia and kind of the, uh, right? Like you've, you've heard the, um, how like the, the frontiers of the United States were referred to as kind of like the pressure valve. Um, yeah. Oh, and that, and that like you, you know, societal pressures, you just give, you know, free real estate. I mean, was there a similar, was there a similar effect in, in Russia or was it, I mean, maybe, because it was um, much more driven by this one specific resource that they're constantly looking for, uh, maybe that wasn't so much the case? Well, I mean, that is sort of the fascinating thing about, like, when we think about other colonial empires, mm-hmm. like the French, like the British, the Germans, um, the Portuguese, the Spanish, right? I mean, once it becomes, you know, untenable, to hang on to those colonies. And, and once like the resources dry up, um, they, they abandon them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, and there's really never that effort to integrate them. Right. Cause I mean, I think what's sort of fascinating and we touched on this before is like, you know, colonization is not just like a physical process right. of taking somebody else's land. I mean, that's it at its, at its simplest form. But I mean, there's also like these mental games that have to be played, right? I mean, like Rudyard Kipling is a great example. You know, all of these novels that we associate the, the Middle East and India with adventure, with excitement, right? I mean, that's part of the colonial process too. Um, and you know, as far as, as far as Russia goes, and actually we should take like a, a quick time out, uh, to, go back to the United States. I mean, like Westerns, right? Right. Is, exactly. is very much like that notion in the United States that this is a cultural process, um, that, you know, the American libertarian spirit, you know, if you believe that it exists is born out in the wild West, mm-hmm. you know, in a, a place where there's not necessarily law and order, where people are free to make their fortunes, uh, where, you know, there's adventure, where there's lawlessness, it's, right, it's but I mean, synonymous. Like it is synonymous in like frontier is synonymous in the American mind with freedom. Yeah, 
And, you know, like even like Alaska still tries to capitalize on that, right? right? Like the, the last final frontier. frontier. I yeah, mean, I really think frontier. it's like yeah. the like the last state where you can, you know, still try to homestead. Um, and so this I mean, there's there's a similar element to that in in Russia as well. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if you're a European peasant, uh, I mean, really, it's not peasants that are migrating too much. But I mean, like there are, you know. Actually, this is sort of how it happens on, on some level before. I mean, the system gets really solidified. You know, if you're a peasant and you're you don't like paying, you know, rent to your to your lord, you don't like the service terms that you have to give to your lord. You know, you're looking to get away from this sort of oppressive state. Well, you go further east, you know, you keep going out onto the plain. Uh, and, and in some sense, like that's there for that's Siberia as well. Um, I mean, it is a place where there are adventurers, right? Um, also Siberia serves the function that like Australia and North America did for Britain. You know, it's a place where you send exiles. Also, uh, this continues, you know, well into the Stalinist period, right? I mean, so many of these industrial sites that exist in, in Siberia were used, it was convict labor. So, I mean, that, that's part of it too. But I mean, like, yes, I think there's a sense that, you know, like that Siberian Russians might have amongst themselves that they are more individualistic, Right. That like they are somehow distinct from Russians in the European heartland. So, I mean, that's you know, that's part of the process, too. And, you know, Siberia also plays this role. And, and, you know, to some extent, Central Asia does that as well. Like that gives Russia like its civilizing mission. You know, when when we talk about how uh, was it Kipling, you know, the white man's burden. Yeah. Right. That, that he frames colonialism in this sense of like, well, I mean, I'm I'm very much like condensing it and, and minimalizing it. But like this idea of, well, you know, someone's got to civilize these people and I guess it's going to have to be us. You know, there there's a similar, you know, process going on in Russia. I mean, it's obviously a lot messier and, and that's sort of like, a, I think, a topic for, you know, a different a, a different podcast, like how that whole, you know, the, the Russianness aspect of the of the colonization and, and the movement east plays out. But I mean, I guess to, to get back to, you know, what you were talking about, like, yes, like, you know, Siberia is very much this frontier. Uh, it's a place where, you know, maybe if things haven't gone so well for you back in the metropole, back in Russia proper, you know, there's opportunity out there for you. Um, it's a place where political exiles are sent. And some of them decide to stay there and some of them do, you know, some some of them do very well there. You know, later on, um, I think we talked about the steep, the Stalipin land reforms in an earlier episode. You know, mm-hmm. as European Russia becomes more crowded and like as Russia is looking to establish kind of an entrepreneurial farming class, Siberia is seen as a way to do that. You know, you can take. Uh, the excess population that exists in European Russia, and you can send them east, right? And they can found new villages, they can found their own farms, and, and you can develop that way. So it's it's very much, you know, it's very much a part of that. Um, but I mean, I think the, you know, sort of the um, interesting thing about it is, and, and why, you know, and I think why Siberia and its natural resources help to explain so much of why Russia is or what it is and what it has become is, you know, as the fur trade dries up, there's this sort of question of, you know, what's going to happen next? Like what's going to happen with Siberia 
And, you know, what are we going to do about it? And, you know, fortunately for the Russian state, and, and I mean, this is the interesting thing, too, about, I think, the resource curse is you would you would think and I mean, this is sort of the pessimistic view, I think, on Russia or even like states in the United States that uh, are trying to shift away from a mineral based economy or an extraction based economy is it seems like to me, or at least the historical example shows that. You'd think the easiest way would be to develop human capital, right, to be like, OK, well, you know, we can't go through this boom and bust cycle because it's very much the North American fur trade, right, that puts an end to demand for Russian furs and drops the demand. Uh, and I mean, also, they they exhaust their own resource. But instead of developing you know, human capital or developing an economy that's not based on resource extraction. And this is where, you know, I do sometimes wonder if it's like just pure luck, you know, how your your system of government or your economy evolves. But anyway, it just it seems to be easier to just look for another resource. Yeah. <laughs> so in Siberia, that becomes metals, right? Like iron mm -hmm. ore, gold, silver, um, and I mean, even within European Russia itself, I mean, I think the, you know, the fascinating thing about the Russian experience is, you know, when we talk about slavery in the United States, right, like and how slavery was, I don't want to say it was necessary. I mean, it could, you know, obviously it could have been done another way, but how at the time, right, slavery was deemed necessary to go out and take the southern the land in the southern states and cultivate it and make it into the profitable enterprise the mm -hmm. the cotton plantations right that it was and you know in in Russia you know as the fur trade dries up you know before it's really known how much other natural resources like you know gold and and iron ore and and things like that that's available in Siberia you know what the russian state focuses to is grain Right. And it uses these mechanisms of violence, of control that it imposed on people in Siberia and it uses it on its own people. Right. I mean, that's sort of the amazing thing about serfdom in Russia is as serfdom is becoming less burdensome and is you know, becoming more anachronistic in other parts of Europe. Serfdom in Russia only strengthens throughout the 17th, 18th and to some extent, like 19 centuries. Mm -hmm. And it's because this state, right, the, the czar and his, you know, entourage and the royal and the noble families that have become rich off the fur trade and rich off other extraction based trades, they have to have another resource, right? Like that's their sole reason to exist is to extract a resource and sell it for money. And so you're going to find that wherever you can. And when, you know, when the furs ran out, they turned their eyes on their own people mm -hmm. and grain. And you saw, you know, sort of the brutal imposition of serfdom within Russia. And that became the reason for the state's existence to subdue the unruly peasantry, to get them to, you know, to get them to give up their excess grain and to sell that, you know, to sell that abroad. And, you know, now in the in the post-Soviet era, you know, there's a new sort of order, right? And and that's gas and oil, you know, oil and natural gas. And so, again, like the parallels, I think, are staggering because you look at how the Russian state extracts oil and gas 
and sells it abroad. I mean, it's it's remarkably similar to the fur trade, right? I mean, there's like Rosneft and these other like Gazprom. Like I think a lot of people that watch hockey and soccer have heard of Gazprom, right? The Russian state company that sells natural gas. You have these huge state monopolies controlled by a select few individuals close to Putin personally, and they're in charge of extracting that resource. Then you have your Western European consumers, you know, Germany, France, Great Britain, I think used to be the United States. And, you know, they also sell to China to some extent, mm -hmm. too. But still, like it's Europe, it's their core customer base. And, you know, we've seen it, too, in those gas wars between Ukraine, Belarus and Russia. Right. Like so the, um, you know, all the old Soviet pipelines, right, ran through Belarus, ran through yeah. Ukraine and they charged transit. You know, they would charge a percentage for allowing all that oil and natural gas to be transited through their territory onto onwards to Europe. And there was a lot of price disputes between those two countries. Right. And now Russia is trying to circumvent those countries through other pipelines that go through like the Baltic Sea and and all of that. But I mean, again, the point is, though, is like it's not these companies like Gazprom and Rosneft that negotiate, you know, prices and things like that. Like it's the state on their behalf. And, and so, I mean, again, to me, like it's remarkable uh, the relationship that we like that we see between the fur trade and natural gas. And it, it's also all from Siberia, too. Right. So like Siberia continues to play this fascinating role in the Russian Empire or in the uh, I said empire. I mean, on some level, it still is. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it's still, you know, it's still there. And despite, you know, you know, 500 years of existence in that sense, like the Russian state has changed very little. interesting it's it's all the i mean yeah it's all, all resource extraction <laughs> well i mean it, it's it you know it's all resource extraction and i mean and it also makes me wonder too like i mean i don't know how much of a parallel there is to be drawn but like i think about the you know what's going on right now in the united states i guess i mm -hmm. said that we weren't going to get into modern events but i just can't <laughs> help myself because I keep thinking of another parallel, and that's like I, I see – and I, I don't think it's a, a majority view at all. I don't think many people believe this. But, I mean, I, I see on social media um, and on you know the, the tubes that are the internet um, a lot of discussion about how you know, it was the government that is the real problem during the coronavirus epidemic, not because of incompetence in, in, you know, stockpiling PPE and making tests, but that they shut down the economy for no reason. Right. And like, that's the real tragedy is that, you know, we shut down the economy. We've, we've caused all this economic pain over something that, you know, really isn't that big of a deal. And, you know, what's fascinating to me now, right. Is you have, you have a president uh, in, in Donald Trump, who I think understands, uh, very, you know, acutely that the only way that he's probably, well, I mean, I guess there's a couple ways that he could be elected, but like probably the easiest and least, you know, shady fraud free way of, of getting reelected would be if somehow the United States economy is able to rebound. And I don't think that it's going to, you know, that's, that's a whole other discussion, but, there's this tension now 
within federalism in the United States, right? Between governors in, you know, California, uh, New York, you know, wherever that and and local governments, too, that say, like, yeah, you know what, like, we want to stay locked down or we want to keep these restrictions in place because, you know, we don't have the healthcare system, you know, what have you. Um, but we see, you know, Trump and a lot of Republicans trying to, I think, step in and say, well, no, the economy is more important. And so we're going to, you know, somehow force you mm-hmm. to reopen. Right. And, and I mean, and to me, What's, you know, fascinating about that, right, is like you can sure you can frame that as a as a discussion about personal liberty. I mean, I think that you can certainly try, you know, like, well, people should be free to go to a restaurant and things like that. But, you know, what uh, if you look at what's the information that's come out of Sweden, right, like a country that really didn't lock down. I mean, they did, but they didn't go far. They did like they did some some measures but but right like it's you know they didn't do they didn't do near what what we did and and they're still um still having economic issues on top of uh the highest death rate in exactly at least yeah exactly and 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 not so much exactly about the death rate but like that it didn't really save their economy right Right. And so I wonder now where we are going to be entering this this phase where, you know, maybe this is how. You know, this is going to be the new relationship to government, right, is uh, I don't think that it's enough to just say, yeah, the economy's back open because people are still, I think, going to be staying away. I mean, I think that's true in our case. Right. I mean, because there's just so many unknowns out there. Right. It's like, yeah, sure, I could go spend my disposable income like I used to, but I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, well, so I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's I, better for me to save my money. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I think this is, you know, we've kind of talked about this before, but, um, and this kind of gets to, to why you see these, uh, economies and states that are based solely off of resource extraction, um, pivoting to you know looking for that next resource when the first one dries up i mean this is all it's all because it's based on the infinite growth model right that like we can just constantly keep consuming oh right and and that the economies are always going to grow and grow and grow and you know much like the uh uh the frontiers frontiers of uh Russia and the United States. I mean, like eventually that has to hit a wall because you know nothing is infinite. Well, you know that's actually a great. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up, Andrew, because it makes me think like you know that's why the like countries like the United States and Russia expanded. It's this notion that that natural resources are you know maybe not infinite, but abundant right like super abundant like we're never going to exhaust the supply or if we have in one place we can just go find it somewhere else and and i mean i think that you know certainly like you know consumption habits are going to change because of the coronavirus like in many ways they already have um but i mean to get back to you know sort of where i was going with this thinking is 
it seems to me like, you know, Trump, I mean, he's already sort of, I think, hinting at it with the churches, right? I don't know if you've seen this, but he says he wants to overrule governors who've closed down places of worship. And, you know, yes, like I understand that that's not really economic and all of that, but I think that's laying the groundwork mm-hmm. for him to say, you know, and he's already done it with pork plants and, and meatpacking plants throughout the country, but I think he's trying to lay the groundwork for, you know, getting everyone to go back to work. And at that point, like if that happens, I mean, and, and again, like I think it's, you know, very ironic that people talk about, you know, being able to consume and being able to go get a haircut and all of that is these sort of, you know, American freedoms that they want back. But, you know, the flip side of that, right, is like if the federal government forces the economy back open, I don't think that's going to give you any liberty at all, right? And I think that we can see the path that this is going to go down because we've seen it in Russia, right? Like once the government becomes the guarantor of um, the of the economy functioning, right? Like once the government, once the government's sole role is not to protect individual liberty, right? Because mm-hmm. I think Andrew, you and I can both agree that individual liberty does not always equal the greatest economic output, right? Right. Um, Like we're seeing that right now, you know, people are making a choice like, yeah, I'm not going out and spending money. Like I'm not going to a restaurant. I'm not going to a ball game. Even if I could, I'm not going to. So at what point, right, to keep the whole system going, is there compulsion? And once there is compulsion, then I think that you fundamentally redefined what the state's, you know, reason for existence is, and it will not be to guarantee individual rights. You know, it it will be to keep the economy going, whatever that means. Um, Which, I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a strong argument to be made that that's always kind of been the the purpose here, right? Is that, um, you know, property rights above uh, human rights, and, you know, that's, if if not expressly stated, but it is, you know, it is, it, it is telling, I think, that you see at some of these reopen protests, you know, the, this, um, the, the, the work will set you free slogan, which, I mean, I don't know if, I think it's telling in and of itself that I don't know if, if people were showing up with that as a bit, like if they were doing that as in, in jest, sarcastically, or if there are people that are honestly saying, like, no, we have to go back to work because this is, you know, this is the only way we can self-actualize in this um, economic system and society that we've created, where the whole purpose is growth and consumption. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, again, too, like it, it gets to, you know, it gets to this whole sort of theme that I think that we've talked about is like, if... Uh, you know, if that's the only point, right? Like if growth and consumption in the economy are sort of the, you know, requirements that we want to have for, you know, the quote unquote good times, then, you know, and, and I, and I know that I said that like earlier, I think I was hinting that maybe the United States system of governments would change or its relationship with, would change. But I mean, maybe like it's worth thinking about, has it, have we just had like maybe a slightly more benign form of the of the fur trade system that we've been talking about? Right. Um, 
you know, something that's like done through property rights as opposed to, you know, sort of the outright violence that we associate with colonialism. Yeah, and, I mean, it's, I you think, know, the extermination of, of indigenous populations. Yeah, I think it's it's entirely fair to, to say that that kind of um, exploitation is, is no longer uh, done, you know, outright at the barrel of a gun, but, um, you know, through lawfare. Right. Like we're going to um, we can use we can use legal mechanisms uh, such as sanctions to destabilize uh, your country or uh, economy if you aren't doing if you aren't extracting resources in a way that's favorable to us. Um, I mean, I, I think that's a totally fair, fair question yeah. to ask. Well, I mean, or or even in the United States and, and this whole notion of like employment at will. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, you know, yes, like that sounds like a very hands off approach to employment and, and hands off. I mean, like the government. But I mean, like on some level, like it's not right? right, because because you have you have the power of a governmental system protecting those employers saying like, yes, like you can fire people for whatever reason. I mean, I know that there's anti-discrimination laws and things like that so yes there are there are reasons you can't fire somebody ostensibly well i think think this is just but you know you've said it you said it before there are a lot of things there are a lot of problems that you can mask and tape over and kind of just you know not don't don't pay any mind to them don't don't pay any attention to them when you have a three percent unemployment rate right Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, and, and I and I remembered something, too, and I, and I don't mean to, like, take us onto a different course, but, you know, I think what it, but uh, I, I also want to draw a parallel today because I think, like, if people are reading news stories about Russia um, and its response to the coronavirus is, you know, Russia is really has really not enacted the type of programs that you've seen even in the United States. Right. I mean, like, I know that there's a, there was a lot wrong with the CARES Act and, you know, we don't really need to get into that. And, and I know that it wasn't as good as what like Denmark and Britain have done. But, you know, regardless, like what we're doing here in, in the United States is far better than what's being done in Russia to save small and medium sized businesses. And, you know, Putin before has, has made references to these people being parasites. Right. And like there's right. a whole Soviet context to that, that like the you know, the small to medium businessman, you know, he's just some sort of like swindler, hustler type, you know, person. And we don't, you know, there's certainly a Soviet, you know, communist angle to that. But it's also like, if you want to understand Russia's approach to the coronavirus, at least to its economic impact, I think, you know, us talking about the fur trade and us talking about the state that grows out of that explains so much about that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we've said that, one, you know, one huge negative of a resource state. And I think that that's true if you look at like Iran, Saudi Arabia. I mean, there are so many where they just deem, you know, whether it's women, whether it's guest workers, they deem so many members of the population superfluous, you know, unnecessary because they don't have really a role to play in the extraction industry. You know, in Russia right now, who's, you know, really feeling the brunt of this is small and medium business owners and and other businesses that are really not connected to the state or the extraction industry. Because I think as far as Putin sees 
you know, when he looks out at these people, they're not needed. Right. right. Like if the whole point of the Putin state, I mean, especially because the bargain, sort of the grand political bargain that Putin made with the Russian people was, I will give you prosperity if you just stay out of politics. And mm -hmm. for a long time, because of and, and this was, you know, very similar to like, uh, you know, I, I kind of wish I'd mentioned this earlier, but, you know, these great periods of of expansion and stability in, in the Russian, you know, in Russian history, a lot of that happens when there is, you know, an abundance of natural resources available. And so, you know, Putin comes to power in the early 2000s. Oil, gas prices are, you know, generally pretty stable are going up. There's a ton of demand, right? I mean, it's something like what a third or a quarter of all the carbon dioxide that we've pumped into the atmosphere is like we've just done in the last 25 years, like something like that, which yeah. is terrifying. But any, anyway, moving, moving on from that, uh, <laughs> you know, he was there at a time when like the resource state, like seemed to work and all of these, small, medium businesses that grew in Russia, because, I mean, you could go to Moscow and St. Petersburg and even smaller cities and see, you know, family, smaller owned restaurants, you know, small, medium sized businesses. There's actually a great flowering of all of that. Uh, but a lot of that was dependent on the excess income that was, you know, flowing down from the Russian state to its people. Because, you know, really, like in Russia, like the best one of the best jobs you can get I mean, I think it's the best job you can get is, you know, working for the state or for like a state controlled company. Right. Because like they are going to be paying your salary and like it's your disposable income that's going to be funding, you know, all the rest of these businesses. And that model, at least until recently, that model worked. You know, mm -hmm. oil, gas prices were very high. Um Russia was making a lot of money. I mean, I think it's it's staggering. I mean, a huge portion of its budget comes from the sale of, of oil and natural gas abroad. So, you know, you have that coming in. You're able to build, you know, what at least on the surface seems to be a more prosperous society. And then it all comes crashing down. And, you know, I think the question going forward now for, you know, for Putin, for the, the Russian state is – you know, what's going to happen? I mean, certainly like there are those, I think, liberal, more liberal minded Russians and liberal, you know, liberals in the West, um, even conservatives in the West, I think, who would, you know, want to see Russia take that step towards, you know, an economy that values human capital more than it does now. But, uh, you know, again, I think the historical lesson is like that that is not that that, that is not going to happen. You know, I think that you've already seen the Russian state double down on, you know, mineral extraction um, in the near term. And I think in the long term, you're going to see something similar to that, you know, that they are going to find the next resource to sort of latch onto, And that might that might even be human capital. Right. I mean, like, you know, Russia talks about building its own Silicon Valley outside Moscow. Um, I can't remember. Skolkova, I think, is, is the name of it. Right. And like, you know, what is that going to look like? Like if it really ever takes off, you know, I don't think it will be the American Silicon Valley. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could very well be a leader in, in technology, you know, leading the next wave, uh, you know, in terms of the revolution that we're seeing. But it's going to look dramatically different. Um, 
And so, I mean, you know, I guess like where I'm going with all of this is like to go back to Russia's coronavirus responses. You know, Putin, I think, is fine letting small and medium businesses just disappear, right? Because the only thing that matters is the state and the extractive, you know, the mineral extractive apparatus that's put in place. You know, as long as they can keep the people working in those industries paid and, and by those industries, too, I mean, like the military, the police force, Right. All of that. As long as they are still getting paid, as long as they are still, you know, they still have a right to their function and they're still necessary. The rest of it doesn't matter. And, you know, and the terrifying thing about that is I think that we are seeing something. And again, this is a sort of a revelation I've had in my head. Um, You know, they happen quite frequently and not all of them are brilliant. But, you know, anyway, with this one, (laughs) um, like the obsession that we have right now with the stock market and how there's this completely uh, schizophrenic relationship between the, you know, what I guess you can call Main Street and, you know, 25 plus million people out of work and a stock market that made up a lot of the gains or a lot or that sorry, that made up a lot of the losses that it's had. Yeah. And, and doesn't seem to be reflecting the, the situation on the ground. And, and I do wonder if like, you know, again, to go back to sort of the, the reopen the economy remark that if, you know, if that's going to be, and, and maybe it already is on some level that that's going to be the purpose of the American state, right? That like individual liberty, those sorts of things, like they'll, they'll be lip service paid to those, right? Or like that will be exploited when it's, when it's beneficial to get votes, like, you know, talking about the second amendment or, you know, whatever you want to, you know, whatever amendment or freedom you want to talk about. But like at the end of the day, the thing that's going to matter the most and what the state is going to, I think, exist to guarantee that happens is that the stock market continues to go up or, you know, at least not go down in in a very precipitous type of way. And, you know, people talk about like not being able to eat at a restaurant or having to wear a face mask is a, a real infringement on your liberty uh, I mean, I guess we can end on this note. Like, I promise you that a state that exists only to make sure that to juice the stock market. And we saw this in 2008, actually. I keep coming up with these, you know, thoughts in my head. We've already <laughs> seen how that plays out. And yeah. unless the the attitude of the state towards the economy, unless our attitude towards the economy and what it means changes, then that's not going to change. Yeah, and I think I wanted to get back to to some, you know, kind of what we were talking about um, before. I mean, we've talked. I so you kind of mentioned the the social contract that Putin has, and I think that that's what's really interesting about this is um, because I think in my in my mind you have to be doing pretty bad if the United States is handling this better than you, um, and. We've talked before about kind of the the contract is you get prosperity, just don't worry about you know don't worry about the inner workings, don't worry about um, what the government's doing. And I think it's I just think it's interesting that it's that that is that that is the that is a social contract that has been 
working for uh, Putin and the the United. I mean, it's safe to say like that's the whole like United Russia Party, right? Like, is that is their their kind of um, I think in their case almost the spoken agreement. Um, a lot of cases it'd be you know the unspoken. Um, but I'm wondering how long that can last now. If that's you know if they you know they they people say you promised us that you know, we didn't have to pay any attention to you and we would be fine and now we're not. Yeah, I mean I I mean certainly like their you know Putin's popularity level has gone down. I mean it's mm-hmm. still like above fifty percent. So like it's still you know the en- or you know the envy of many a Western you know, leader. Um, and, you know, again, like, I don't know how accurate these surveys are. I mean, I, I still generally think that, you know, he, he's, he's popular in the extent that, like, even if you dislike him, it's difficult to envision an alternative. I mean, maybe that's a good way to put it. Um, but I mean, I think that what this, you know, to go back to what you've said is like, you know, there's, there's always this sort of, you know, in, in an extraction state, like, yes, like people can get, you know, rich and there can be prosperity. Um, but I think when the chips are down, right. Or like when, you know, shit hits the fan or your backs against the wall, then you do see, at least in the government's eyes, or at least in the ruling system's eyes, what is most important. Mm-hmm. And in Russia, that has been the extraction industries and the, uh, you know, the industries aligned with them, whether that's, you know, like the army, for example, you know, the military industrial complex, you know, that's really been, I mean, on some level, like that hasn't been getting state aid just in the sense that like they don't need to, you know, like you're a major industry, you need help from the government. It's not that hard to ask and get it right. Like, you know, they don't have to pass a formal program to bail out, I don't know, like Gazprom or Rosneft, because they're already inter- like intertwined with the state. Um, but, you know, I, I think that you see that, but you do see that played out like in these social programs, right? Because, I mean, again, like at the end of the day, you know, Putin is not in power because of the, the average Russian, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he's in power because the this extractive you know this this state that's built on extraction that he has helped to build and has now sort of taken on a life on it of its own like that is where the power is right and like that's what he needs to maintain i mean and and it's sort of you know again like to to go back to the parallel of the united states right i mean like we had a we had a president who won without winning the popular vote uh, who got a lot of money from, you know, right wing groups, a lot of industry and, and, and industry, right? And I mean, look at where he's placing the focus. Yeah. I mean, and, and so again, like, and, and it could be the case too, regardless of who wins this election in, you know, here in 2020. But like, if, you know, like, I think we have seen this shift in what's the government's main focus. And I mean, and at least under Trump, like, I think the average person and their their concerns and their desires like those are those are not you don't need to think about those. Uh, now, like a meatpacking plant out in like Grand Island, Nebraska or Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 
that has, you know, that was a major contributor to your campaign or, you know, employs thousands of people and, you know, is a, is an industry where if it goes under, then people are going to re- really realize how dire things are because they can't just buy hamburger or pork chops whenever they want. Right. And that becomes the, uh, that becomes the real concern. Right. To the point that like mm-hmm. Trump used the National Defense Act, right, to reopen all the meatpacking plants. Yeah. And, and, you know, so we've seen that, right? We've seen the government now become the guarantor, the provider of security, you know, in the sense of, you know, keeping these businesses open. So, and, you know, and, and maybe like, you know, you can say that it's sort of always been that way, that you know, we really haven't been able to escape this model of governance where, you know, the government's sort of main function, you know, the, its use of the, the monopoly of violence is, mm-hmm. you know, not to, Use it to benefit the, the, its, you know, individual subjects, but these large, you know, corporate or aggregate groups of its subjects. Um, and so, you know, that's, it's something that, you know, historically, as we've talked about with the fur trade that's been around a long time, you know, whether it continues into the future, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think like sort of the last great, at least in the United States, the sort of last great reorientation between the government and its people in terms of, you know, what people should expect from government and what the government's role was, was the Great Depression. Um, uh, and, hmm. I mean, are you thinking like the Great Society programs or? Uh, no, I mean, well, I would say Reaganism. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean like that's, I, I guess it's, I was going to get re- to that. By, like a reorientation saying, away from, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the Great Depression and Great Society were, were uh, you know, kind of like a re- reorienting towards like, here's what um, here's what government can do for uh, uh, people, you know, like Reaganism and pretty much every like the programs of austerity ever since then by Democrat and Republican is basically, you know, been reorienting towards more and more. Uh, you're not getting shit from us. Yeah, and, and yeah, and you should be grateful for that because we're giving <laughs> you more freedom. <laughs> right? You'll you'll shut up and you'll take what you get and like it. Um, and so I, I mean, I guess to end on that, I mean, I you know, we don't know which way this is going to go, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it very well could come out. You know, this situation is so in flux that I don't know who's going to win in 2020. Yeah. Right? Okay. So I. I mean, this is, you know, this is pointless prognosticating, but I mean, I personally have, um, I've personally just given up any chance of, uh, given up any hope of like a, a great, uh, reorganizing or reorienting of society. I mean, I'm, I'm pessimistic as well, but I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all, it, it, it's a possibility, um, the, you know, the other possibility is, is one that we've talked about, which is that, you know, the, that the government is going to take more. And I mean, I understand that, like, during the Great Depression and, and FDRs, you know, um, like the WPA and all those government programs, like that was the government being involved, being involved in the economy. And, you know. The government being involved in the economy isn't necessarily always a bad thing, right? 
But I mean, I think the question then becomes, and I mean, maybe we'll leave this as our as our food for thought for people to think about is like, you know, involved in the economy for what purpose? Is it to is it continue? Is it to continue to, you know, extract a resource as Russia's case is? Is it continue? You know, is it to protect something like the stock market, which really is just, you know, in aggregate and in the abstract, the extraction of resources in this country and Mm -hmm. abroad? Right. Is it to protect something like that or is it to, you know, and this is sort of where you get into like the Norway model or, you know, the Sweden model or the, you know, I think the visions of the New Deal in the 30s and the 40s and to some extent the 50s. Right. Or is it that, you know, we want to improve the economy for the benefit of, you know, the average person? Right. Because and and those are two different things. Um, So, I mean, that's that, you know, that's one thing to think about. And then, you know, the other is, you know, we have seen a we have seen. And this might be, you know, this is, I think, also something that is good for people to keep in mind. You know, we have seen how the state or the ruling, you know, powers that be respond when there is a new resource out there and that there's a tremendous amount of money and power to be had from this natural resource. And that generally when that is the case, when you're talking about exploiting a resource, whether it's fur or oil or gold, you know, things don't, you know, don't necessarily turn out for the best. And, you know, one thing that I'm thinking about is that, you know, we often talk about the next frontier in terms of, I don't want to say extraction, but of, you know, of development being green energy, mm-hmm. right? Being sun, being solar power, being, you know, wind power, geothermal, um, carbon, you know, dioxide removal from the atmosphere. Like I know that they're building factories for that. Uh, and, and I think everyone who has looked at that industry has somehow only looked at the good aspects of it, right? Like that this is here for the benefit of humanity. We're making the world a better place by doing this. And I don't want to disagree with that, but you know, where to look out for is like, what do we need to do as, as a, you know, as a human race, as a society, like a global society to, to ensure to, you know, make, make that it comes about that, the, you know, that solar power and wind power don't become the next sable furs or the next oil and gas, right? Where the government, you know, where the government's new purpose now is to exist to, you know, protect the solar panel fields or the wind farms and, you know, to guarantee their security and to guarantee the, you know, that they keep operating, right? Because if you want to talk about truly building a greener, more, you know, a freer future for future generations, you know, we're not going to get it on this, on this same model, right? Like, yes, like changing the technology matters, but so does changing our attitude into how we go about, you know, for lack of a better word, like extracting those technologies or extracting those resources through those technologies. Well, I think there is, I mean, yeah, this is, uh, that is really um, good place to end it on because I mean, um, I, I think Naomi Klein's, written about this um a bit but because we know one way or another we're going to stop using fossil fuels right like there's there's only a limited amount of them on the planet one way or another they will we will stop using them whether that's voluntarily or they just run out 
And, and so one way or another, we're going to, to transition, to make that transition. And the question to ask yourself is, are you going to transition in a way that is very exploitative and, um, you know, uh, keeps keeps the the wealth generated and the benefit of that transition in the hands of a few or are you going to make the transition in a way that's equitable to everyone and yeah uh, that we all all share those benefits so yeah i mean are, are we talking about a society where like everyone from rich and poor you know to like the apartment renter to the homeowner has mm -hmm. like a solar panel on their roof or, or are we talking about you know i don't know like invading libya and converting the southern Libyan desert into a massive, you know, solar right. farm. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and so that's like, you yeah. know, again, like I don't want to diminish green energy at all. Like, I mean, it's something that's going to have to happen, but I don't think that we should be, you know, like naive and thinking that we can, that we as a, a you know, as a people, as a, as a global society can avoid the, the pitfalls and the exploitative nature that comes from it. Because yeah, I mean, Andrew, God, like just I look at look at uh, Bolivia, right? Like Bolivia is a huge source of lithium, which is one of the key components that's going to go into all of this technology, making the batteries. And they just had a coup, and they did a coup like six months ago, eight months yeah. ago, and now already this you know supposedly democratic um, government that stepped in is <laughs> basically. Uh, no, no, we're not going to have elections. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, so, that I mean, is, it is, it is happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, it's the next sort of great, like, you know, question that's, you know, that, that's going to happen because, uh, and I mean, and to go back to what you said, I mean, you know, Andrew, like the other thing that what, what the fur trade shows is like nothing is permanent. Right. I mean, like one of the reasons why the fur trade dried up was like, yes, they ran out of animals, but also fashions changed. Right. And, you know, we used to hunt whales like you think out like, you know, Moby Dick and like all those great stories uh, of adventure following the whale trade and how like all the way from Nantucket, Manchu Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Right. We would send ships to the far corners of the earth in the hunt for whale blubber. And, you know, it wasn't, I mean, yes, like the resource ran out, like the, you know, there were, there were fewer and fewer whales, but also like oil comes along and it's like, are you kidding me? All I have to do is drill a well in the ground and this stuff just flows out. I don't right. have to, you know, ride the Nantucket sleigh ride, you know, like, or harpoon an animal. That's going to happen with oil as well. Like eventually it's, it's going to happen that some government or, you know, a bunch of entrepreneurs are like, wait a second, like we don't have to. We don't have to pay, you know, people to drill wells or, you know, we don't have to get involved in Middle Eastern politics to make a ton of money. Yeah, sign me up. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, yeah, like that part is coming. Uh, the question is going to be like, what is the, you know, what are we, how are we going to build a state around that? Because, I mean, I mean, the, the state is going to be there, but what its relationship is to this resource and, and consequently to its people, you know, that's something that has to be decided. So... You know, hopefully, like, you know, as we wrap this up, like that gives some people a little optimism for the coronavirus times. Um, just, you know, just a little bit like something to cling on to. Because, uh, I mean, we all, you know, I guess the advantage of this, right, like the advantage of us having this discussion is like that people are aware of this. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like we know that this is out there and we know that this is going to come up. And so, you know, really like the question is like, you know, th- it's up to us now. Um, and, you know, something that we've said throughout like this, this podcast is like, yes, like in many ways, like we are, you know, we follow in the footsteps of our forebears for better or for worse. You know, like it's difficult to break out of that, uh, but it is possible. So, you know, with that in mind, um, I don't know when we're going to have another episode. Uh, I hope soon. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, working as I'm imagining a lot of you are like I'm working from home now and not going out a whole lot. So I have I have the free time on my hands. Yeah, lots of lots of reading time. <laughs> OK, well, until next time, everybody. And, you know, thank you for uh, listening to this one. And I think going forward, like I am going to try to like just think of you know, these like very simple questions and and trying to answer them and giving people, you know, that sort of perspective. So with that, we will see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,